I think it's important to see verses 9, 10, 11, and 12 in the context of what James has just been saying. Last week, we saw this chief enemy to joy and completeness in Christ. The word he used in verse 8, and we talked about it at length, was double-mindedness. And we saw that as being so much more than just fleeting thoughts of, of doubt, like a person trying to trust God, but circumstances being such that they, they're trying, but they feel the pushback of, of uh, frustration and weakness and fear. That's not what James means when he talks about double-mindedness. God has infinite patience with weak wrestlers in faith. He knows our frame. He remembers that we're dust. Double-mindedness is more like uh, a divided approach to God and life. It's a person trying to keep a foot in both camps. It's a person who likes to, who, who actually enjoys the thought of maybe learning something from God's Word or singing some love songs to Jesus, but, but then the rest of the week there's, there's an absence of what you would call a Christ consciousness in all the things that they do, and they're quite content with that. They've got this part of their life, and they've got this part of their life, and 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 the walk with Jesus, the Christian faith, is kind of like an add-on you can get. That's double-mindedness. To be strong, James says, whether it's in prayer, asking in faith, or anything else, you have to put all your eggs in one basket, and the basket has to be God. And that's not easy for any of us to do, and we shouldn't pretend that it's easy for us to do. It's hard to do because we live in a material world. We're living in a material world. Everybody want to sing together? That great hymn of the church. We live in a material world, and it's easy for that visible world to become the center of gravity for our lives, the power base for our planning our dreaming, our achieving, our goals. It majors on material and marginalizes spiritual, the pursuit of Christ. In other words, we we put all our eggs in a material basket rather than a God basket. So that's where we've kind of come to. James is going to talk about Two groups of people who go to church on Sunday. Point number one. There are lowly people who are needy and they are in deep distress. Uh, 1.9 says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Now remember, when we started out in the book of James, he's writing to Christians whom he describes as the 12 scattered tribes, persecuted, forced to leave. Um, it wouldn't be quite the same comparison, but picture yourself being a, a, an evangelical Christian living in Syria and, and driven across the border just for your safety. Okay, that, the type of thing you see on TV. Persecuted. 
A lot of them, these 12 scattered tribes, they were poor to begin with. Um, Those who had any wealth probably had to leave much of it behind. It's not a world like ours where you have your investment portfolios and they follow you across the country electronically no matter what. When you leave your land and you're a farmer, you leave your wealth. James writes to remind these people that that their poverty, while a genuine trial, he, he, he somehow wants to convince them. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. He wants to convince them that their need, their lack, their want is not the essence of their situation. It's tough, it's hard to bear, but it's not the essence of their situation. What they still have is greater than anything they have lost, and that's hard to remember when you're experiencing it. They have something in Christ. He calls it an exaltation that, that can't be corrupted, that can't be threatened by the physical trials they are going through. But they will lose, they will lose even their joy in Christ if they don't, as James taught in verse 4, allow steadfastness to have its full effect. This takes a while. It takes waiting on God. It takes deep thought. It takes trust. It's kind of a savoring of the promises of Christ and what you have in Christ that, that you summon because it isn't just flowering down on you in the midst of your, your loss and your trial and your persecution. And so James, I went and got new uh, glasses and, and, and the, uh, the doctor sits you down. You know how he does that. He pulls this great big thing up in front of your face and there's a little thing on the wall with some letters and numbers and then he starts flipping these things around. You know that, how that works? And he goes, how's that? And, and you say, what, is there a chart? Like, what am I? And then he clicks, clicks, oh, that's better. And then all of a sudden he hits the right spot, and you feel like that blind Bartimaeus. All of a sudden you go, whoa, there, there it is. James, like a spiritual optometrist, he's trying to fit these needy Christians with lenses that are properly focused on what they have not lost in Christ. I want you to see this. Do you see it? That you might be, verse 4, perfect. I know what you've lost. I know what you don't have. I know your lack. What I'm trying to get you to to focus in, I want to get you to see clearly. You're not seeing it yet. I want you to see that you can still be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. If they will look to see where God might be taking them and what they have going for them and what they have in Christ rather than just mourning over what they had to leave behind. Don't allow... James would say, don't allow this world to confuse you about where true value lies. Oh, man. And don't confuse the watching world 
about what's important, most important in your life by acting as though in your poverty and in your trial you have nothing bigger to place your hope in. Let your steadfastness in Christ send a message to those who need to see that a relationship with Jesus, it's bigger. It changes the way you view even the most difficult circumstances in life. That's what James is saying to these scattered, persecuted, impoverished Christians. What, what the nations where you're being driven, what, what do they see about what you treasure? There's a great opportunity to manifest Christ here. There is for all of us. As you scramble in the dust of Syria and northern Palestine, far removed from your home, your friends, your possessions, as you dig in that dry, foreign, dusty soil to build some kind of new dwelling, boast, he says. What a word. Boast in a Savior and a hope that can't be quenched, that will sustain the soul. And isn't that easier said than done? But I want to be like that. Don't you want to be like that? Seven of you. It's all right. (laughs) I can see. No, Pastor Don, I don't want to be like that. When you're hurting, poor in our text, in, in, in a state of want, empty cupboards, in a state of need, unresourced, there is a tendency to think that the worst thing about your life is its want. It's easy to focus all your attention on lack. Covetousness does not just grow in the heart of the rich. Covetousness does not just grow in the heart of the rich. Also very silently, maybe gradually, an underground anger, a bitterness toward life, toward God, toward people that don't care. It can grow in an unguarded soul. And that attitude can feel very righteous. But those attitudes, the covetousness and the anger, they can harm your own soul and equally devastating, they can damage the testimony. They can damage the testimony, the the clear statement that the satisfaction you have in Christ isn't shaken by the loss of material goods. And most of the church around the world knows that. Not so much the North American church. How many understand what I'm saying? Not so much the North. You wouldn't have a hard time convincing Christians where Deb and Jed Lacroix serve. You wouldn't have a hard time convincing them of that. But you might in Newmarket. Rejoicing in the Lord, let's face it, it's more easily said than done. Don't grieve over your lack, but rejoice in Christ Jesus. 
There are better things by far to glory in than earthly wealth. Keep focused on the eternal. That will keep your heart free from worry, sorrow, envy, grumbling, patience like James taught in verse 4 of this chapter. It'll start to have its perfect work in your soul gradually over time. Boast in the exaltation you have in Jesus Christ, says James. There's another group, probably closer to most of us. It's easy when you talk about the rich. and pe- I'm digging for a pen here. That's why you see me. I saw something I wanted to write down in my notes. There it is. Okay. I didn't want you thinking I was just, you know. Two. And just this comment, when we start talking about the rich, don't you dare sit and think about just, you know, five people you know who have a lot more money than you. Like this is, this, by and large, this is us. Globally, this is us for sure, right? If you have a great deal of wealth, you need to, you need to hear these words even more earnestly. But all of us need to hear these, these words. There are people who are flourishing materially, And abundantly blessed with goods. And as James thinks about these 12 scattered tribes, the last part of verse 10, and the rich, so so the poor, to boast, boast in their exaltation, what they have in Christ. The rich boast, he's still talking about boasting, and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. Now, we're all going to pass away, rich and poor alike. You know the line, nobody's getting out of here alive. So they're all going to fade away. Why does he just say that particularly about the rich? Well, because they have ways of... of filling their lives with enough distractions and amusements and pleasures that they're likely to miss it coming. (laughs) James doesn't repeat the verb, boast, from verse 9, but the structure of the sentence shows clearly it implies this is still his command as he turns his attention to to addressing well-to-do. Just as the lowly brother is to boast in his exaltation, the rich is to boast in his humiliation, verse 10. And we might not be used to that strange wording, but the idea is a dominant one, and it runs throughout the Bible. You'll see it in places like Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 9. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, nor the mighty boast in his might. Let not the rich man Boast in his riches. So see, here's that idea. Boast. Let him who boasts boast in this. He understands me. Knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. And so clearly, the prophet is addressing groups of people with different strengths. The wise and the mighty, and he talks about the rich. 
He calls them to turn from what would be the most natural source of their security, pride and pleasure, possessions, and to work all the more diligently at boasting. And you'll notice that's the same word that James uses. They're to boast in something else. Set your attention on something else. Paul talks about the same idea in 1 Timothy 6.17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. That's the idea of pride and boasting, right? But to set their hopes, set their hopes, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides with everything to enjoy. So, what does James mean when he says the rich man is to boast in his humiliation? What what does that mean? He's actually issuing a warning. The warning is, our world takes great stock in wealth. I don't suppose that's a newsflash for anybody. Our world admires wealth. It finds money and the power that it brings, it finds that very impressive. And that makes it very easy for rich Christians that he's talking to here. It makes it very easy for them to believe that wealth is impressive, to become almost puffed up, puffed up about wealth and power. It's more common than we know for Christians to share this world's assessment of the glory of wealth. That's the particular problem in James' wording, the trial. Remember? The trial. There's a particular trial that poverty and want bring, a particular danger. We talked about that. There's a particular danger that wealth brings. To the rich, James says, instead of boasting in your wealth, and then this phrase, boast in your humiliation. Your humiliation. What, what can that possibly mean? Well, James is deliberately calling the rich, the powerful, to regularly, regularly play this tape in your mind. Rewind it and play it again that you're constantly pulling yourself down to think less about your wealth and power and more on your dependency on God for everything. James is saying, James is saying, don't, don't, don't hug your wealth. Confront your wealth. Don't hug your wealth. Confront your wealth. The rich man must actually boast in his humiliation. That means he must work harder. He must work harder than most people to cherish a contrite spirit. He must turn up the volume on words like, blessed are the poor in spirit. 
The rich person, more than anyone else, should wake up in the morning, every morning, and say, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and he loses his soul? That's what the rich person has to say to himself over and over. This, says James, is the particular trial. He's still talking about trials. The particular trial... The ongoing battle for the mind of the rich Christian. He might, if he's careless, he might be so foolish to view his position in life through the lenses. Remember the optometrist? He might view his life through the lenses of the world around him. Where things are measured by what you can purchase. His wealth, his earthly power might make him deaf to what James and Jesus and the rest of the scriptures say about Deepening his commitment to the things of the Spirit and glorying in Christ Jesus. The rich Christian must tune in every day to how utterly lost and helpless he or she actually is. How worthless all the wealth and power in the world is if it's at the expense of Christ and his word and his people Particular dangers to the poor and the rich. Nobody's sinless here. We've all got much to work with and to pray about. But if you're particularly wealthy, you need, for the sake of your soul, not for the sake of paying bills in a church, you need, for the sake of your soul, to regularly find large chunks of income and put it into God's kingdom. Not just for the kingdom, but for you. For you. Three. There's this metaphor, the annual death of plant life. James' metaphor with a message. Even in church, sometimes we listen to God's word and sometimes we don't. And after giving his instruction, specifically crafted first for the lowly, the poor, and then for the rich, for both, James picks this rather common metaphor, this picture that he paints, to, to sort of crystallize the earnestness of what he's saying. So people won't just, okay, Pastor Don's moving on to point three, I can forget about what he just said in point two. Why, why must... The rich man boasts in his humiliation. Because, so now we know he's continuing with the same thought. Because, like a, like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. The sun rises with its scorching heat, withers the grass. There it is. The flower falls. Its beauty perishes. And that he's still talking to the rich, he makes quite clear, so will the rich man fade away. And then he says, in the midst of his pursuits. This annual death of vegetation, it suits James' purpose beautifully. And in fact... Strikingly, the whole Bible seems very interested in this metaphor because it's used over and over again in the Scriptures. 
Here's the prophet Isaiah. All flesh is grass. Beauty is like the flower of the field. Here it is again. Grass withers. Flower fades. Look at this. When the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. Here it is again. Grass withers. Flower fades. When something's repeated over and over in the Scriptures... Notice that phrase, the breath of the Lord grows on it, blows on it. Now, now he's, he's talking there about, you see, the plants die. Uh, the end of the year comes. You've got stuff in your garden. And you go out after a couple of frosts and what was nice and green, and you see everything turning all brown and crusty, right? Did you know that God does that? That's what that says, right? The breath of the Lord blows on it. Why does God do that? Why doesn't he just let it be nice all the time? I want to answer that question in in just a minute. Look at another text. The same idea comes up in Psalm 103, 15 and 16. As for man, his days are like grass. You starting to see a pattern here? Flourishes like a flower of the field. The wind passes over it. Gone. And its place knows it no more. Less subtle. Psalm 49, 16 and 17. Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. We're, here's the deal. You, you drive around, you see all these nice houses, and you make the big distinction between renters and owners, and then you read this text and you realize we're all renters. There aren't, who's an owner? Are you, really? How long are you keeping this? Most of you, whatever you've got, you're going to live in it for another 40 years. It's gone. Own it, rent it, do what you want. So when something is repeated like that over and over in the Scriptures, God's trying to remind us of something we tend to forget. That's repetition. That's what it's for. James, back to our text, and these other texts just sort of enforcing it and backing it up. He's he's particularly thinking of wealthy people, and he says, you will need to bring this to the front of your mind over and over again. In other words, just learning this once isn't enough. Hearing this once will not have the effect that the Holy Spirit wants this truth to have on your life. This is something you have to tell yourself all the time. You are like a flower. Poof. It's gone. Many passages speak of people being like grass. James says the rich are especially like a flower, that bright blossom that stands out in the middle of a field of grass. And its beauty makes you think it's special, that it's not really like the rest of the grass that's around it. But it is. It's exactly like the grass. It won't last any longer than the grass around it. It looks good. 
it makes this stunning appearance, this explosion of color. That's what wealth can do. It's so, it's so um, outstanding in its, in its luster and beauty that you would think it's more permanent than the grass. But James says it just falls, just like the grass. Remember I said, why does the breath of God blow over things and cause things to wilt and die? Well, the seasons, especially as we experience them, are God's gigantic reminder, God's gigantic timepiece that never needs winding, never can be stopped. He places the seasons so visibly to force us to see the passing away of our earthly bodies and our earthly goods. We see everything material come and go. And that's God's way of saying, how silly to anchor your life there. Everybody get what I'm saying? One of the things that happens when you're in a church for 34 years is you start, I start every once in a while, Rini and I will drive in the car and I'll say, remember so-and-so? Remember so-and-so? And if I just stop and think of all the people, some of you have been around like, like Dudley and Eileen and, and, and people that have been in the church for a long, long time. And you go, just take your head back to Um, even 925 Davis Drive, let alone Parkside. Just go back to 925 Davis Drive and let faces just play on the screen of your mind who everybody in the church loved and knew, and they're just gone. They're gone. How many of them? I, I could sit down and I could go, seriously, I could do dozens and dozens and dozens of people who are cherished in the church and now, it's not, that we, it's not we're unloving, but that thing about the place is remembered no more, they're just gone. And that that's, that that's the journey. That's the way it works. That's the way it happens. We're, we're all, get this picture, here we are, we're all sitting in Terminal 1 at Pearson. Everybody. Some have a flight at 9 o'clock. Some are catching a flight at 2 o'clock. Some are catching a flight at 4 o'clock. Some are catching a flight at 8 o'clock. But make no mistake, we are all in the waiting room at Pearson. Right? Flights are going. (laughs) Point number four. Our greatest danger lies in becoming preoccupied with the visible, material side of life. James 1.11b For the sun rises with its scorching heat, the grass withers the grass, its flower falls, its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. This is the advantage of going through a whole book of the Bible. I, I'm not naive. You know, I'm, I'm quite certain that a topic like this doesn't bring in people like uh, how to have a zippy sex life or something like that. This is, but this is Bible, isn't it? Like, this is God's Word to the church. 
Strange words. The rich man will, quote, fade away in the midst of his pursuits. In the midst of his pursuits. That is, he, he will fade away while, while still being preoccupied with these things. Because, because he's been sucked in by his wealth-honoring world, he won't even see it all coming to an end. He will be, he will be wrapped up in these earth-shaking concerns, piling it up, And then he'll just be gone. And everyone will go, what, what, what happened to Joe? And the irony of it all is the same world that is egging him on, cheering his accomplishments, admiring his possessions, it will remember all his efforts, James says, like it will remember the grass that was cut down last week. The delusion of it all. There are many places in James where you can see him reflecting on things that he heard from Jesus, his blood relative. James, more than anyone else in the New Testament, he sounds like Jesus. It's as though he could hear Jesus all over again. This is one of those times. He probably remembered Jesus saying something like this. As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, until the day Noah entered the ark. And they were, see that word? Unaware until the flood came, swept them all away. So will it be at the coming of the Son of Man. They were unaware. They were unaware. Doesn't mean they were uninformed. Doesn't mean they were not bright. Doesn't mean they weren't warned. Noah, he preached for years. He preached for years about the coming flood. They heard it so often that they just tuned it out. They had other stuff to do. The people chose not to tear themselves away from what would be their ordinary pursuits. They refused to make themselves free to hear the word of the Lord. But here's the difference. Jesus takes this story of Noah from the beginning of world history, the ark, and says it will be exactly that way at the end of world history. The striking similarity is that people at the end of the age will be living life as if everything still had a long time to go yet. That's, that's what Jesus is saying. People like us will get involved in the things of our lives and will be living our lives like there was all sorts of time. That's what that's about. That's what Jesus is using Noah to teach. People will just be consumed with normal events. It doesn't, aren't you busy? You're sitting here this morning. Are you a busy person? It's good to be busy. Nothing wrong with being busy. Better than being lazy. But there's a danger to being busy 
And we better face it because the Bible faces it. Like in Noah's day, it's easy to get so busy with things, material things, that we just can't really picture a great change coming. Jesus isn't saying it's a sin. There's no inherent sinfulness in the normal activities of our lives. It's not a sin to be involved in eating and drinking and marrying. It's not a sin not to know when Jesus is coming again. None of us does. But it's a colossal blunder to live as if he's not coming again. It's it's the height of foolishness to think of life as an uninterrupted continuum. It's a sin to be preoccupied with the wrong things to the point of being unprepared for the important things. There is, however, one big difference between James' words and those of Jesus. I don't know if you noticed it. Jesus was talking about people not being ready for his return. James isn't talking about Jesus' return. James is talking about our departure. Jesus was talking about his return. James is talking about our leaving. It's a sin to not think about that. It's not a sin not to know the day you're going to die. Who would really want to know that? Here's the sin. Here's the sin. It's a sin not to live each day like it might be that day. There's the sin. It's not a sin not to know when you're going to die. It's a sin not to live each day like it won't be that day. That's what James is talking about. That's James' warning. Riches have a horrible capacity to drug us. They have a wonderful capacity to extend the kingdom. My goodness, a wonderful capacity to extend the kingdom. I get these... Silly questions, you know, people think they're being real smart and they'll come up and say, well, Pastor Don, so if I do gamble and win the lottery, will you take my tithe? And I just look at them right away and say, absolutely, the devil had that money long enough. Every penny I'll take. Take more than the tithe, I'll take the whole thing. Just so you know. You know, riches aren't the sin. It's, it's their capacity, the horrible capacity to drug us and distract us from the ultimate issues of life. In fact, riches, riches, this is James' warning. They make it seem for all the world like they are the real issue of life. That's what Jesus called the deceitfulness of riches. In this world, people do pay great attention to wealth. In this world, people listen to the voice of the wealthy. In this world, people admire the power of the wealthy. The wealthy can do things that other people can't, pile up all that evidence, and why wouldn't we think wealth is the biggest issue of life? It looks like it. Enter James. Well... For a person who's going to last about as long as a cut flower, 
and someone who gives accountability to the Lord for stewardship. You have bigger things to think about than either your wealth or your lack of wealth. Both the rich man and the poor man have their own battles to win. And now James will wrap up by telling us what's at stake. And servers, you can get the emblems ready at the back. Okay, go ahead and get them set now. Point number five. James 1, verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. So that's still the topic. Trials of poverty and want. Trials of wealth and abundance. Well, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test... That, that's what you're in. It might look just like random circumstances. Whether suddenly you have an abundance or suddenly you have very little, it's a test, James says. When he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. This is his general wrap-up statement for this section about the poor and the rich. And the essence of it is keeping our eyes on this target, this, this uh, crown of life. Into every life come trials, poverty, abundance. And in each particular case, those trials can draw our eyes off of Christ, draw our hearts off the target... James momentarily left the general topic of trials that he introduced in 2, 3, and 4, and he zeroes in on these two trials of poverty and wealth. And now in verse 12, he just says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast. Blessed is the man. And even there, doesn't it remind you of Jesus? Blessed is, remember the Sermon on the Mount? So James has his own beatitude that he got from his relative. His own beatitude to wrap up this section. The man who remains steadfast under trial, who doesn't waver, who isn't double-minded, who's allowed steadfastness and patience and a focusing on Christ to make him generous, not covetous with his wealth, to make him um, content not covetous in his want. That man will receive the crown of life. I think James would give terrible altar calls. I think James would give terrible altar calls. I, I, he never offered much to people just for a one-time confession. Read his book. He never offered much to people for just wording a certain prayer. But, it, but, if you, but if you finish the whole race, if you allow steadfastness to have its full effect, if you use every circumstance to magnify your position and trust in Christ, if you stood the test... And if you lived in this blind, lying world without compromise, without double-mindedness, without materialism, 
Then you receive the crown of life. Nothing very instant in there. The crown of life, that's a phrase not used very often in the Scriptures at all. There's one other place where it is used that's written specifically to the church. In fact, the only other place. Directed to Christians under fire again. Directed to Christians being persecuted, just like James. Some of these last words in the Bible. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. There's spiritual powers behind the people that put you in jail for your faith. The devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. Does this sound like James? And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. I will give you the, see it? Crown of life. Okay, so this is us now. He who has an ear, let him hear. Let him hear. We need to think differently about receiving a a crown. Crowns in our world, not many places still, but lots, I I guess enough. Crowns are um, handed down through royal bloodline, so Princess Charlotte now. Should everybody else die, what is she, fourth or fifth in line or something like that? But it comes through heredity. You have to get that out of your mind because James isn't thinking about that. James is talking about what Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians 9.25. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So this, this, this crown, this presentation given to the winner of the games, the athlete who excelled through all the discipline and rigors of training and trial and and. and perseverance and all the tests that come, the one who lay aside every weight, the one who endured right to the end, kept focus on nothing but the finish line and wasn't distracted by anything else except the finish line. That's, when you're running a race, if you think of anything other than right there, that finish line, you're not going to win. That one, James says. That one. There's a crown of life. Well, Pastor Don, I thought salvation was, was all by grace, through faith. And you're making it sound like a lot of work this Sunday morning. Yes, salvation is by grace, through faith. And that's exactly what these trials, these tests that James talks about. That's exactly what they reveal. They pull to the surface of my life chunks of hidden unbelief. They pull to the surface of my life all the places where I'm still double-minded, where I thought I was single-minded. They reveal places where what I call faith is nothing more than just religious pratter. 
And it's the mercy of God that he allows these trials, these tests. Now, while the unbelief can still be brought to the cross of Jesus for grace and for cleansing, that's the whole point of these opening 12 verses of James. That's how the trials remove what's lacking in my faith so that I can be perfect, complete, lacking nothing. So the trials that purify the faith are God's grace.